Hello and happy Wednesday, everybody. Thanks for stopping by for our midweek devotion. And starting today, I want us to begin a brief series called The Anointing. Sorry, as my keys slide all over the desk. And in this study, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts, uh, some selected passages in Acts. Uh, and we're going to be jumping around a little bit, so it's not necessarily going to be uh, in order. But today, we are going to be in Acts chapter 4 for part 1. And I'm so glad uh, you've decided to join in, whether live or in person. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Let me just open this briefly in prayer, and then we'll begin. Lord, thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that by your Spirit you would speak to our hearts, to mold us, shape us, transform us into the likeness of Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32, where it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So a couple things here I want us to focus on, and apologies for the, the lightings going in and out. I can tell my apologies for that. Verse 32, where it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And I want us to take a second there and recognize the importance of unity when it comes to the anointing of God. And a couple of scriptures I want to use to go along with this. First one is Psalm 133, where it says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So while it may seem like a not very exciting way to start talking about the anointing of God by talking about unity as the people of God, but as we look at Psalm 133, we see that what God says about unity, here maybe if I shift uh, in front of the window that will help. Psalm 133 says that when God sees his people dwelling in unity, that there he commands his blessing, that there his presence is in a special way. And this goes exactly along with what we see in the New Testament, where it says, where two or three gathered, there I am in their midst. Uh, Matthew 18, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So we think about a passage like that and say, well, you know, typically it's used for when only a couple people come to prayer meeting, or if there's low attendance at church, we say, well, as long as two or three are gathered, their God is present in their midst. And that's true, but I think we're kind of missing the point that there is a special anointing of God's presence that comes when his people are together in unity. Uh, and it says here in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, that they were of one heart and one soul. 
Now, this isn't necessarily going to mean that they agree on everything, but their hearts were united, their souls were united. And there's something so beautiful about the simplicity of the book of Acts, where their focus is Jesus and his mission in the world. And as we come into chapter 5, we're going to begin to see for the first time some problems beginning to erupt in that, uh, specifically with Ananias and Sapphira, but that's for another time. But so far in the first four chapters of Acts, we see several indications highlighting that they are together, that they are united, that they are one. They're moving as one unit. And I think there's some beautiful analogies of that. Uh, I, I tend to use sports a little too much. Uh, let me block some of that in the background. Uh, let me talk about music for a second. Uh, when I was in high school, we were fortunate to have a tremendous band director. And with that, we had a tremendous music program. Uh, specifically, our jazz band uh, won awards at different jazz festivals uh, throughout the northern Ohio area. When I went to college, uh, we had a, a wonderful band director. Uh, we had some very talented musicians. But as a band, we were nowhere near as good as my high school band. Now, which seems odd because in a college band, uh, you basically had everybody, for example, everybody in the trumpet section was the lead trumpet player at their high school. And now here we are together, and so you can almost get this idea of like, you know, it should be like an all-star band. You've got all these guys who and, and gals who were lead trumpets at their schools. Now we're coming together and we're one trumpet section. But the problem was that everybody still wanted to be lead. Uh, everybody still wanted to be the dominant uh, part in the trumpet section and in the other sections of the band. And the result of that was a band that just didn't gel as well together. We weren't functioning as a band, as a unit. Uh, we were a collection of individuals playing the same song, but the harmonies weren't quite there. Uh, the dynamics were not there because everybody was just trying to play loud and, and all the time. And so we lost that. So even though we're playing the same song, we weren't a united band. We weren't one. And you can see the same thing with a sports franchise where sometimes players, they're, they're playing for the same team. They're on the same side but they're all focused on themselves, and it shows because they're not functioning as a team, as a unit. And you can see the same thing with the body of Christ. You can have a gathering of people who love Jesus passionately, but they don't come together to form one heart, one soul. Uh, they, they don't know how to function together as a body. And again, you think about uh, back to my college jazz band, and it, it can be humbling if you were a lead trumpet player to then go to college and be second chair, third chair, fourth chair. Um, but those parts, even though they're not the glamorous part, are vitally important for the overall sound of the band. If everybody's playing first part, you're losing so much richness and so much depth to the trumpet section. And the, the piece of music suffers as a result. And so it is with the church that you have so many examples in the New Testament of the church being the body of Christ and every part being unique, but still part of one body. And think about your own body and 
when you stub your little toe, it affects everything. Every part of your body serves a purpose, uh, serves a function. Uh, several years ago, I had my tonsils removed, and with that, I actually had my uvula removed, uh, the little dangly punching bag in the back of your throat. Uh, it, long story behind that, but it was taken out. And it was always one of those things, it's like, what's the purpose? But actually, my doctor talked to me about the fact that in taking this out, there would be a compromise to my immune system. Uh, because for whatever way, the uvula serves a purpose in the uh, immune system. So all that to say, every part needs to play its part and work together for the whole. And I think what we see in the book of Acts, specifically early on, is that very thing, that everyone is playing their part, that everyone is playing their part as part of a larger whole. And a lot of times, especially in churches, it, it kind of becomes a glorified PTA, where you have a lot of people who are kind of jockeying for position, jockeying for power, jockeying for influence, jockeying for what they want to see happen. And the whole thing kind of gets stalled out because they're not truly working together as a unit for a common purpose. And so in the church, if, if our focus is something other than Jesus and his mission in this world, the church is going to have a lot of problems because there will be personality preferences, there will be clashing agendas. And so you can have a lot of people who love Jesus passionately, who know the word of God. But if Jesus and his mission is not clearly in its place as the focus, you're going to miss out on the anointing of God. You're going to miss out on the presence of God in that gathering. And so here at the end of Acts chapter 4, taking that time to highlight that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And I referenced Psalm 133, and now let me just go back to the prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, where again, this is his prayer in Gethsemane. So his prayer before he is arrested and put to death. So these are kind of high shelf prayers. These are top priority prayers. And what does Jesus pray in that moment? He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Notice what Jesus is praying. He is praying for all believers, not just right here, right now, because notice where he said there, I do not ask for these only, his disciples right now, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. That's me. That's all of us who have come to believe in Christ through the preaching of the gospel. So here in Gethsemane, John 17, Jesus prays, not only for, for his disciples then, but for his disciples now. Was that a sentence? <laughs> but also for his disciples now. He's praying for you, praying for me, praying for all of us throughout history who would believe in the gospel, that we would be one, but in a very specific way. If you'll notice what Jesus prays there, he gives a very specific definition to what that unity looks like. In verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may, may be in us. 
So what exactly is the unity? What does it look like that Jesus is praying for? Well, very simply, he is praying that the kind of unity that exists in the members of the Trinity would exist among the people of God. Whew. The Trinity is one of those points of theology that is very hard to articulate. And this is getting a little bit off topic, and I apologize, but we have a lot of fancy ways to try to make sense of the Trinity, to try to help us understand how the Trinity works, how there's one God, but three distinct persons in that one God. And we use a lot of things. And the problem is all of those analogies unintentionally promote heresy. <laughs> uh, we like to say, well, I, I like to think of the Trinity as an egg. And, and I, I get it. You've got the shell, you've got the white, you've got the oak, three different parts, one egg. But the problem is, if I hard boil an egg, peel off the shell and hand you what's left and say, what is this? You would say, well, that's an egg. It's missing one of its components, but two of the three are still in place. And so you recognize it as an egg. If you take one member of the Trinity away, the entirety of the Trinity dissolves. You can't still have the Trinity. You can't still have the true Godhead if all three personhoods of the Trinity are not present. It's not, well, you got, you got the Father and the Son. That's good enough. No, it's not. You can pull a part of the egg away and still have an egg. You can't pull a part of God out and still have God. The same thing is true when we think about uh, water. We say, well, water can be, H2O can be a liquid in water form. It can be a vapor or gas. It, it, can, it can be a solid. It can be frozen into ice. And again, I, I get the concept, one thing, but it can have three different forms. But the problem is that's modalism. That's the teaching that... God can only be the Father, or the Son, or the Holy Spirit. He can't be all three at the same time. And so here again, well-intentioned, but you have, you've, you've kind of blown it because you've now got modalism. God is at all times, all three at the same time, without compromising who he is. And so all of these examples of the Trinity we, are kind of helpful but they ultimately unintentionally promote a heresy about the Trinity. And so we, we're left to say that I don't get it. I think that's part of the point, that I don't think we can truly, in this limited human form, understand the Trinity. And so it makes it kind of hard for us to apply John 17 to say, okay, if Jesus is praying that we would be just as united as the Trinity, what does that look like? Basically, it means... We can't pull any one member of the body apart without destroying the whole body. That we have to be so one that who we are is so intertwined with each other that we, you can't pull us apart. That's how united we have to be. Now, you can even look at the Trinity and say, okay, well, Scripture seems to indicate that there are distinct roles that the Father plays. There are distinct roles that the Son plays. There are distinct roles and functions that the Holy Spirit fulfills. So again, we go back to this analogy that with the body of Christ, we are distinct from each other. We have different roles and functions, 
but we are one. We are one in the spirit. We are one in the body of Christ. And if we want to talk about the anointing of God, we can't do it in isolation. We can't talk about that anointing as just, it's just me and Jesus. It's me, Jesus, and all of us together, united just like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united. That's what Jesus prayed for, and that's what Acts chapter 4 is indicating, that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And if we allow anything to tear us apart, there's a drastic problem, and we're denying the anointing of God upon us as a people. Because again, it's where brothers dwell in unity, Psalm 133, that their God commands his blessing. Matthew 18, it's when there's two or three who are together where God manifests his presence in a special way. It's when all the members of the body are together that there is a sense of the presence of God that you just don't get when it's just you and Jesus. So Jesus prays that we would have the kind of unity that is found among the persons of the Trinity. And when that begins to happen, there you're going to find the anointing presence of God upon a people and upon a church. So the question becomes, do we want that? Or will we say it's Jesus and his mission, and we are all on board with that? Again, to go back to my sports, uh, I can go to PNC Park, watch a Pirates game, and I will wear a Pirates shirt and my Pirates hat, and I will cheer for the Pirates along with everybody else in that place. And we have differing political opinions. We have uh, different uh, ethnic backgrounds. We have different economic backgrounds. So many things that would normally divide us. But in this moment and this time, we are all there for one purpose. And because of that we're, it's like there's a brotherhood of Pirates fans. We come into church and we say, I know that Jesus and his mission should be the thing that defines us and unites us together, but I want to talk politics. I want to talk this social issue or that issue, or I want to debate this, or I want to debate that. And we bring our own personal agendas. We make it about me rather than us. And we lose the anointing presence of God. It has to be we are all here amidst all of our differences for the sake of Jesus and his mission in this world. If we try to be united under anything else, it's not going to happen. But when the world looks at us and they say, how in the world can you guys be so united? because of Jesus and his mission in this world. And because of that, we're all on the same page. We might vote for somebody different on election day, but about what matters, it's Jesus and his mission. And nothing's going to separate us because of that. Because we have that in common, that's all that matters to us. So the full number, back to Acts chapter 4, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So we get this amazing picture that they are so committed to each other that they share their stuff. They sell their stuff so that they can contribute to those who are in need. They sacrifice for each other. They love each other. They provide for each other. They meet one another's needs so much so that in verse 36, 
it says that who we know is Barnabas has a field and he sells it and he brings that money, gives it to the apostles. And this sets up the controversy of Acts chapter five, where Ananias and Sapphira say, wow, you know, everybody was awed that Barnabas did that. Well, we want some of that attention. So we're going to sell a field, but we're going to keep some of it for ourselves. But we'll say that we gave everything, which they had every right to do. They, they didn't have to give anything. But they try to pull it off like they made the same sacrifice. They wanted the same attention maybe Barnabas got. And God doesn't mess around with that. And that's for uh, another time. But the focus here at the end of Acts chapter 4 and the place we're beginning when it talks about the anointing of God upon our lives, the anointing of God upon our churches, starts here with Acts chapter 4 verse 32. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They were united. You say, well, why are, why are we starting there with anointing? Why aren't we starting with Pentecost as the place of anointing? Because again, Psalm 133, when brothers dwell in unity, that's where God commands his blessing. Jesus prayed for that kind of unity in John chapter 17. We even see it in Acts chapter 1 that in Acts chapter 1, they are together. Uh, we even see in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So they are together. Uh, they are united. And that's what sets us up for Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit comes at Pentecost. So before Pentecost happens... The followers of Jesus are dwelling together in unity. So if we're to be looking at, in the coming weeks, the anointing of God, the presence of God upon his people, we want to start here with believers being together in unity. Not united about their politics, not united about their stance on social issues, united around Jesus and his mission in this world. Period. And if we have that, I mean, think about the disciples. Do a study of the 12 disciples, the apostles, and guys who, if left to their own devices, would have despised each other. What brought them together? They followed Jesus together. No matter what differences we have, if we follow Jesus together, we're united. And in that unity, if we preserve the unity of the Spirit, God will command his blessing. God will pour out his spirit. So, as we continue with the study in Acts and looking at the anointing of God, uh, the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon a life and a church, we want to start here. Are we united with our brothers and sisters in Christ around Jesus and his mission in this world? Or do we allow secondary and petty things to say, well, I want nothing to do with that person? The anointing of God is at stake. I don't see another way around it. But thanks for watching. Uh, I want to close this in prayer. Uh, but Lord willing, uh, we'll see you back here next week for part two. But let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would unite us as your people. Lord, if there is any bitterness in our hearts, if there is any resentment, if there is any unforgiveness, if there is any problem in our heart with another believer, uh, Lord, your word tells us to leave our gift at the altar, go be reconciled, then come back and make our offering. Lord, may we take unity seriously. And may we make that unity based on Jesus 
in your mission in this world. Not secondary things of our opinions or preferences, but we're united in you. And Lord, as we're united in you, would you pour out your spirit and use us in this world for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much again for tuning in. And Lord willing, we'll see you back here next time for part two. God bless you. Happy Wednesday, everybody, and welcome back to our midweek study as we continue this series called The Anointing, as we look at some select passages in the book of Acts. And before we begin, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. We thank you for the gift of being together. And Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word, and Lord, speak to us and transform us into the likeness of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, thank you so much again. Uh, let me just shift, uh, see if I can get some better lighting here. Uh, anyway, we are in Acts chapter 3 today as we continue this look through the anointing of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And again, not uh, verse by verse, but we're looking at some uh, selected passages, I think, that reflect some significant points when it comes to what it means to live and walk in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter 3, uh, we're starting at verse 12, but let me just start, jump back and pick up verse 11 while we're here. Well, it says, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Now, if you go back to uh, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 3, we see the uh, lame beggar who was healed, and people are filled with wonder and amazement at what happens. And so... Now, again, the people are astounded. They run together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And verse 12, And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see now, who you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. So, let me go back and pick up one key launching point here as it relates to the anointing of the Holy Spirit, because obviously what happens at the beginning of chapter 3, this healing of the lame beggar, clearly there's a demonstration of anointing or else that doesn't happen. And so obviously as the people see this and hear about it, they run to Peter and John and they put the focus on Peter and John. But notice what Peter says when he addresses the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Huge statement here by Peter. What's he saying? 
<clears throat> two things. First of all, he's saying this didn't happen because of our power. It's important for us to understand that when the Holy Spirit works, the Holy Spirit works. Okay, And I say that because sometimes we can get this idea that it's, it's us, to be blunt. That somehow if we are smart enough, if we are talented enough, if we are creative enough, if we are persuasive enough, if we are gifted enough, that God can use us. And the focus comes back to us. But Peter's making it clear here that this healing had nothing to do with their power. It's not as though Peter had this inherent power and through that power made healing happen. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. If you are a part of a church, as our, our church is, where we pray for the healing of the sick. I, I want you to put yourself in the last time you prayed for someone's healing. And think about how you prayed. How often, when we pray for somebody's healing, do we put a little extra oomph in our prayers? You know, like we just hunker down and really mean it because if we add that extra punch, then the healing's going to happen. Aren't we now leaning into our own power and our own strength? And Peter said this healing had nothing to do with our power. But not only that, he says this healing had nothing to do with our own piety. It had nothing to do with how pious they were, how righteous they were, how spiritual they were. Rather, it had everything to do with Jesus. He makes that point clear in verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter recognizes that the miracle that they just witnessed had nothing to do with their power or their abilities, had nothing to do with their piety or how spiritual they were. So if you take those two out of the equation, if it's not your natural abilities, if it's not your, your personal spiritual abilities, then what was it? He says, it's all Jesus, period. Jesus alone is responsible for the work that took place. What does this have to do with anointing? Now, we could talk about how he's going to go on and uh, use this as an invitation to, for the gospel. But I want us to focus in on that posture that Peter takes, that this healing, this miracle was all about Jesus. So again, what does this have to do with the anointing of the Holy Spirit? The anointing of the Holy Spirit comes when we allow Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. Because if, if you think about the logistics of what does it mean to for your church to be healthier? What does it mean for your church to be stronger, more vibrant? And a lot of times we look at our own power, our own piety. We look at, well, let's upgrade the worship. Let's have a little more fire in our preaching. Let's uh, have better brochures. Let's have uh, 
all these different things that we list, and they all have their place. Please don't misunderstand me. But at the heart of it, it's not about that. And it's not even about our own piety. And again, sometimes we, we fall into that Old Testament mentality of the sin of Achan, where God's anger is against the people. We've got to figure out where's the sin in the camp so that we can weed it out and the blessing of God can be restored as if we deserve for God to do something. And so you see this a lot when a church struggles. We start looking around. Who's the Achan? Who's the one who's hiding secret sin? As though, you know, if we're spiritual enough, then God owes us something in return. And we are so good at making the focus about us, making it about who we are, what we can do. And again, we come back to this over and over and over. When a church struggles, we look at, well, we need to fix this. We need to improve that. And, and, and there's a place for those discussions. But at the core, this is about the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And who is doing the work? If it's not Jesus, nothing else is going to matter. Yeah, I, I've heard it once uh, compared to, let's say, a restaurant. And I'm one who, I love pizza. And for me, it's just for me, the best pizza places are often the places you'd rather not go into. Uh, we used to live in a rural community in, uh, uh, not northern Ohio, but not southern, it's kind of in between, halfway between Columbus and Cleveland. And... The best pizza place in town was a place when you walked in to pick up your pizza, the lights were very dim in the place. And you were grateful for that because you didn't want to see the, the status of the place. Um, it wasn't quite up to standard, but man, was the pizza good. So why, why go to this dingy, danky pizza place? They had really good pizza. There's a, a restaurant uh, in a neighborhood we lived at in Cleveland where, very small restaurant, very popular, the tables were very, if you were claustrophobic, do not go to this restaurant. The tables were jammed in there. Um, you kind of squeeze into your seat and you're like bumping into everybody around you. Uh, very crowded, very congested, very claustrophobic, nothing special at all about the restaurant facility. So why was it always so popular? The food was so good. And ultimately, I think we lose the anointing of the Holy Spirit because we think if, if things aren't going the way that they should, then we need to spice up our efforts. And again, there's a place for those conversations. But fundamentally, you could dress up your church as much as you want. You can replace the carpet. You can replace the pews. You can put in new windows. You can have the best uh, smelling air freshener. Uh, you can have the perfect temperature, the most beautiful bulletins, the best PowerPoint presentations, the best worship team, the, the best preaching. If Jesus isn't present, what do you have? Now, certainly we can look at examples where it seems like 
the presence of Jesus is not in a church, but things seem to be going well. But at the end of the day, they're really not. But if you get the presence of Jesus in a place, you no longer care if it's the best bulletin you've ever seen. You no longer care if the chairs is as comfortable as you would prefer. Because the presence of Jesus is there. And I just love how in the middle of this miracle, when the crowd is trying to figure out what just happened, Peter said, don't look at us. We didn't do this. It was Jesus. And a lot of times you can go to conferences about church growth and church renewal and, you know, what was the secret? What was the trick? And a lot of times, well, you know, we implemented this program and it really turned things around. We're making it about our power. We're making it about our piety. I, I, I love the stories. I, I think of some friends of mine who planted a church in Northeast Ohio. And when you ask them, you know, why is this church exploding the way that it is? Their simple response, it's just Jesus. Jesus showed up. And I think we forfeit the anointing of the Holy Spirit when we somehow think it's about us and what we can do. And again, there's a place for that conversation. We don't want to create stumbling blocks. There, there is a responsibility we have in the process of ministry. But it cannot be confused with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Having great music does not mean there's the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Having great preaching does not mean that there's the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Because you can just manufacture a really good sermon. It doesn't mean there's anointing. When all said and done, when you think about your life, when you think about the changes that have happened in your life, can you say, well, because I was really disciplined, because I did this, I did this, I did this, or is it Jesus did this in me? If you think about your church or ministry and somebody were to ask you, why is it going so well or um, what turned things around or what would your answer be? Would it be Jesus? He just showed up. Or would you tell a story about things that you did? I remember uh, a mentor of mine uh, several years ago took me out to lunch and was asking about, you know, what's, what's God been doing at the church? And I talked about all these different things that we did. And he very lovingly and graciously again asked, what's God doing? You've listed a lot of things that you guys are doing, but what's God doing? And I had a hard time answering that. We were so caught up in what we were doing. Is it possible that for your life, for mine, that we get so caught up in what we're doing for Jesus that we fail to see what Jesus is doing and lean into what Jesus is doing among us? That is where the anointing of the Holy Spirit is found. So last week we looked at how the anointing of the Spirit is found when believers are together in unity. And now we want to add to that, that the anointing of the Spirit is found when 
the believers dwelling in unity let Jesus do what only Jesus can do without trying to control it, without trying to take credit for it. I think there's a great lesson there for us. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit. And we ask for the anointing of your Holy Spirit upon our lives, that you would do through us what only you can do, that we would not try to take it into our own hands, that we would not try to take credit for what you do. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit and use us to bring glory to the name of Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for watching, and we'll catch you back here next time. God bless you. Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's devotion, and thank you so much for watching. If you're on Facebook or YouTube or listening, if you are uh, listening to the podcast, welcome. And we are continuing a series of looking at the anointing of God and what it means to live in the anointing of God. And today we're going to look at Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26, and the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And before we look at that, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this day. We pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word. Lord, that you would speak to us and transform us and make us into the image of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26, where it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. So just pausing there real quick to point out that here we see this introduction that Philip is being directed by an angel of the Lord. Now, in a second here, as we continue... Uh, in verse, uh, at the end of verse uh, 27, he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. In verse 29, and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip is being directed by the voice of the Holy Spirit. And this brings up an issue that could be rather difficult. Now, before we kind of talk more about that, let me just finish up uh, at least the introduction to this account. We're not going to look at the entire account of uh, reading from Isaiah and the response of that. But it says in verse 30, So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And so they talk about Isaiah, and he talks to him about Jesus, and the eunuch wants to then be baptized. Now, all of this to say we have to go back to how this all began. This all began with the prompting of an angel of the Lord. And it seems like there, there's kind of a correlation between this angel of the Lord and the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to him. So the Holy Spirit is directing Philip where to go and what to do in this scenario. And what we see in this account is this is directly linked to Philip engaging in sharing the message of Jesus and discipling this Ethiopian eunuch. And so one of the principles we see here of being guided by the voice of the Holy Spirit is that he, Philip is being guided on the mission of God. 
And when we talk about listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, we can often be distracted. Uh, we can often be a little squirmy uh, because we're not quite sure what to do with that. Because you know we've all been in that situation where somebody says, God told me to do this, or God said this was okay, and it, it seems kind of suspect. And, and what do we do with that? And, and there's a lot that could be said about that. But I want to focus specifically on the fact that one of the key ways that God speaks by his spirit is in giving clear direction on live what it means to live on mission with God, about accomplishing his mission in this world. And here we see Philip, who's being directed by the Holy Spirit, and again, look at the details, specifically being told where to go and what to do once he gets there. And this is something that Philip could have very easily glossed over. He could have very easily missed. He could have said, well, that's not where I'm heading, or, you know, that's kind of awkward. I don't want to do that. But he specifically is following the direction of the Holy Spirit, and we see the fruit that comes from that. And I think this can be a fairly natural part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what it means to live in the anointing of God, to live with the sense of expectation that the Holy Spirit is going to be trying to communicate with you. Now, it would be wonderful if the Bible told us everything we need for every single decision, every single moment of our lives. But if that were true, the Bible would be a massive book. But we do have principles in his word that direct us and guide us. Now, there's no chapter and verse for Philip to say, okay, I need to go to this place at this time and speak these words to this person. But we do have the principles of being directed by the Holy Spirit. And I believe that there are times when the Holy Spirit wants to give us that kind of direction. But we have to be aware and listening for those moments. I, I can think of one situation in particular where uh, serving back in the Cleveland area, and there was somebody from our church who uh, was going through some difficult situations, and they just kind of disappeared. Uh, they stopped coming to church. They weren't returning phone calls, uh, weren't responding to emails, uh, really couldn't get in touch with them to find out if everything was okay and what was going on. And I was running some errands one day, and... I sensed this nudge to go to a particular store. Now, it was a bookstore, which it doesn't typically take a lot of prompting to get me to go to a bookstore. But on this particular day, I had a lot to do. I had a lot to get done and just really didn't have the time. As much as I would have loved to go into the bookstore, just didn't have the time. Uh, it was one of those moments where initially I'm like, no, I got too much to do. I'll go tomorrow, next week, something. Uh, but just the strong prompting to go to that bookstore. And so I went, uh, was about to pass by it, turned in the parking lot, walked in, and I, I kid you not, I wasn't in the store 60 seconds. And I heard somebody behind me call my name. And it was the person from the church that I had been concerned about, praying for, desperately trying to get in touch with. And they happened to be at that bookstore at that exact time and was able to connect with them and find out what was happening in their lives and uh, be able to uh, give some pastoral care 
in that moment. And it was a, a huge God moment. And again, it would have been one of those things that would have been very easy to simply dismiss and say, well, that's just me. I just want to go to the bookstore because I, I like going to bookstores, but I don't have time, so I'm not going to go. But being sensitive to recognize this prompting is more than me just feeling like going to a bookstore. There was something different about it. And sometimes people can ask, well, how do you know? And it's one of those situations where you learn to recognize that voice over time. You learn to distinguish what is just me wanting to do something and what is the direction of the Holy Spirit leading me to do something. And a lot of times it's going to revolve around the mission of God. Uh, it's not just going to be, hey, uh, God told me to, to go spend the day at a bookstore. That's probably me. But there are occasions where God might have a divine appointment for me, just like he did with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So I want to invite us to try to be more aware over this coming week, to look for those opportunities, to look for those moments when there's kind of this prompting that we can't quite explain. Now, let me preface this by saying, let's just say, going to the bookstore was just my idea. It's just something I wanted to do and God had nothing to do with it. Worst case scenario, I spent a few minutes in a bookstore. Okay, if it wasn't God calling me to do it, it's kind of one of those no harm, no foul. I mean, nothing bad happened. Um, you know, no, no big deal if this isn't God directing me. But if it is, and I ignore it, I'm missing a huge opportunity, which I would have had I not gone into that store. And just to make sure you don't think, well, you know, he's always just hearing from God and always obeying. Uh, there was a time once I went to another store, and before I went in, I asked God if there was a divine appointment for me there, and uh, if there was someone he wanted me to talk with or to pray for. And I got a very distinct description of a man, uh, what he was wearing, a general sense of what he looked like. And I walked into the store, and again, uh, this doesn't always happen this way, but within 60 seconds, to my right, was a man who perfectly fit that description. In that scenario, I blew it. I, I panicked, and I just like, oh, no, this is weird. And just went the complete opposite way, never interacted him with him, and missed what could have been a tremendous opportunity. Now, what if I just made up that description and coincidentally encountered a man who fit that description? And I walk up to him and say, excuse me, sir, is there, no, weird question, but is there by chance any way that I can pray for you? And I ask that question of people a lot. Uh, cashiers would just, you know... Sorry, this may seem really bizarre, but is there any way I can pray for you? And nine times out of ten, the person is very receptive and very appreciative. Now, if this situation in the parking lot, it was just me making up a man's description, and I happened to see a guy who fit that description, and I ask if I can pray for him, chances are I'm not going to do damage to his soul by asking that. But what if it was truly God putting me in this man's path 
and I blew it. I'll never know what may have happened in that encounter. And so again, there comes to this point of faithful risk that, you know, asking this man if I could pray for him, probably not going to do harm to him, but it could have made a life-changing difference. And I missed that opportunity. What if sometimes those little urges and promptings are more than just you? What if they're God speaking to you by the Holy Spirit, wanting you to be an encouragement to somebody, wanting you to be a blessing to somebody, wanting you to pray for somebody, wanting you to share the good news of Jesus with somebody? It would do us well to quiet down, to slow down and be aware and listen and sensitive to those moments when God may be trying to speak to us. So I pray that that will be encouragement to us over this next week as we seek to live in the anointing of God and his Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Lord, I, I thank you that you direct us by your Holy Spirit and by your word. And I pray that we would be sensitive to those moments when your spirit is trying to speak to us, that we would step out in faith and obey those inner promptings to live on mission with you, to walk in your anointing. Lord, that you would use us to bring glory to the name of Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for tuning in and Lord willing, we'll catch you next time. God bless. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our devotion for this week. And my apologies. Uh, usually this gets recorded on Wednesdays uh, live on Facebook. Uh, coming a little late, I do apologize for that. But here we are as we continue this series called The Anointing, as we look at the anointing of God, the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon the church in the book of Acts. Now, this is in a lot of ways a prelude to a sermon series that I'll be starting uh, next week on May 23rd, which is Pentecost Sunday, and beginning to look at the person and work of the Holy Spirit and really looking forward to that. But anyway, we are in Acts chapter 10 today, and we'll be looking at verses 44 through 48. And as we begin, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this day. We thank you for your word and your spirit. Would you speak to our hearts and transform us into the likeness of Jesus through our time here together? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, again, we are in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48, where it talks about the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles. And it says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Now, the reason this is significant is because, remember, the Gentiles were the outsiders. Uh, they were those who were outside of the kingdom of God. They were those who were enemies of God. And we see this tension, especially earlier in the book of Acts, of the Jewish Christians not knowing what to do with all of these Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ. Uh, what do we do with them? You know, the, Because remember, as people begin to follow Jesus, even after he ascended into heaven, they're mostly Jewish people who still held to a lot of their Jewish traditions. And they, they didn't see any need to deviate from a lot of those practices. And so now we have the gospel reaching a Gentile audience who have no background in Judaism. And so these early believers are struggling with how do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile following Jesus, but not holding to uh, a lot of the Jewish traditions that Jesus embodied, uh, that we have made part of our faith uh, since the beginning of our time following Jesus. But here, 
they see that Gentiles are responding, but also the gift of the Holy Spirit is being poured out even on the Gentiles. Now, the question here becomes, how do they know that? Well, first of all, we know, and we'll see when we get to that sermon series, that the Holy Spirit comes upon those and fills those uh, and dwells those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. But more specifically, verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So this is the evidence for them. Now, it's not the evidence, but it's an evidence that the Holy Spirit had come upon these Gentiles in that they start speaking in tongues. Now, again, we'll get into this in more detail when we go through that sermon series on the Holy Spirit. But there's a connection between speaking in tongues and extolling God, praising God. I'll just leave it at that. But what I want to focus on here is not the, the tongues part, but that is the manifestation of spiritual gifts as an evidence of the anointing of God's Spirit. Where there is the anointing of God's Spirit, you're going to see the manifesting of spiritual gifts. And I know there's a lot of debate about spiritual gifts, and we're going to, in that sermon series uh, that we're going to call Living Water, uh, we are going to talk about both sides of that debate, and you can weigh scripture and uh, come out where, where you feel uh, the Word of God is most clear. But we see that there is now a manifestation of spiritual gifts. The Gentiles are doing things that they couldn't do before they had received Christ. And so because of, there's evidence of spiritual gifting, there is reason among the, uh, the circumcised believers, the Jewish believers, that the Holy Spirit has indeed come upon the Gentiles. So the main principle I want us to take here is that when the anointing of God comes, when the Holy Spirit falls upon a people, there will be a result in expression of spiritual giftings. It won't always be tongues. Sometimes it might. Uh, sometimes it'll be prophetic utterances. Sometimes it might not. Uh, but there will be an activation of spiritual gifts. Uh, if there is not an activation of spiritual gifts at work among a body, then there is reason to conclude that there is not the anointing presence of God there, that the Spirit is not active if spiritual gifts are not being manifested and utilized. So then Peter declared in verse 47, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So another key piece here is the piece of obedience. And what we see here is Peter immediately saying, okay, these Gentiles have responded to the gospel. We see that evidenced in that their spiritual gifts being manifested. So the next thing we need to consider is these folks need to be baptized. Again, not because their salvation hinges on it, but because that's the first most basic act of obedience as a follower of Jesus to not just symbolically, but it, there's with both baptism and the Lord's Supper, these sacraments, uh, however we want to label them, that there is a spiritual dynamic that takes place. I can only testify for myself that my relationship with Jesus changed drastically. Uh, I gave my life to Jesus on May 6, 1988. I was baptized in September of 1988. And I can look at my Christian journey throughout that summer, something changed that September. 
after I was baptized, after I took that first and most basic step of obedience, of being baptized. There was a shift in my relationship with Jesus. A, a, a depth was opened up that I didn't know from May through September. And so the anointing of God is really going to be connected to, are we doing what Jesus asked us to do? Are we doing what Jesus commanded us to do? And part of that is baptism. In baptism, even you know, we see John the Baptist come on the scene baptizing. And so even among the Jewish crowd, there was an understanding of this practice of baptism. And for them, it would have been if you were a Jewish person who had kind of fallen away from your faith or become very nominal, this was a what is called a ritual whereby you would symbolize and declare that you were rededicating yourself to Yahweh. Uh, if you were non-Jewish and wanted to convert to Judaism, this was some a process you would go through to indicate that you were turning away from your old life and now beginning a new life as a follower of Yahweh. And so John embraces this, and Jesus embraces this, and this becomes now a, a process whereby a person can indicate that they have now left behind their old life, and they're now pursuing a new life in following Jesus. And again, I can just say from my life that there was a drastic shift in my relationship with Jesus when I took that step of faith uh, several months after I came to Christ as Savior. So I would encourage you to prayerfully consider that. But then I love the very end of this passage where it says, Then they asked him to remain for some days, clearly hungry to learn and to grow and to begin those initial steps of discipleship. And so again, I, th I think a couple pieces I want us to take away when it comes to what does it look like when the anointing of God is present, when the anointing of the Holy Spirit is present. Spiritual gifts are activated. That should be an expected sign that the Holy Spirit is at work, that there is the anointing of the presence of God among the people, that spiritual gifts are activated and manifested among the people. There are, say, people coming to faith in Christ and being baptized, that people are beginning to obey that people are now hungry to learn more and to grow and to understand more of what it means to follow Jesus. And I would say that any church in the world would love to have their ministry defined in these ways because there's an anointing of the presence of God that can be found when these things are present and active. So if you want to pray for your church, for your life, I think this is a great passage to pray. Uh, as we pray for the anointing of God's presence upon us, to make that more specific, Lord, we want to see the activation, manifestation of spiritual gifts in our gatherings. We want to see people coming to faith in Jesus. We want to see people baptized and committing their lives to following Jesus. We want to see people hungry for discipleship, hungry to grow, hungry to understand what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, I think some great specific things we can pray for our churches, for our lives, our ministries. So uh, I pray that we would uh, make that the prayer and desire of our hearts to see that true in our gatherings. So let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that among all of our churches and in our lives, that we would see the anointing of your presence come, that would result in the activation and manifestation of spiritual gifts, in people coming to faith in Jesus, people being baptized, beginning to follow you, and hungry to learn more about what it means to follow you. And Lord, if any of those things are not true in us, Lord, begin in us, but then work through us that this impact could be felt among those around us so that Jesus alone would receive all glory and honor and praise. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you so much for tuning in, uh, whether live on Facebook, uh, YouTube, uh, podcast, whichever it is. Really appreciate it. If it was a blessing, I would encourage you to share it with a friend, and we'll catch you back here next time, Lord willing. So until then, God bless you. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our devotion for this week as we continue our series on the anointing, which in a lot of ways is a companion to my current sermon series on the Holy Spirit. And so we're looking at some different aspects of what it means to live in the anointing of God's Holy Spirit and and some of the smaller details of that that we're not necessarily going to get into during our series on Sunday mornings. And so this week we're in Romans chapter 8 and we're going to start at verse 22. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to not only understand what we see in your word, but to show us how to live it, how to apply it to our lives today. And Holy Spirit, would you transform us to the likeness of Jesus? We ask this in the most precious name of Jesus. Amen. So Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 22, where it says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul is pointing out here that creation, ever since the fall with Adam and Eve, has been groaning and longing for its restoration when Jesus establishes his kingdom and makes things the way that they should have been all along. But he says, not only is creation longing for that day, but he says, we ourselves are longing for that day. And he says that we have the first fruits of the Spirit, and through that we groan inwardly. And if you remember, there's a lot of language in the New Testament about the Holy Spirit as the seal, as the sign of uh, the promise of God's covenant, of the assurance of our inheritance as saints. And so here we get part of that. And so, but with the Holy Spirit in us, that we also have this inward groaning as we eagerly await our adoption as sons. Now, we are adopted as children of God, but this is the ultimate fulfillment of that when the kingdom of God comes in all of its glory, when Jesus reigns upon the earth, and we receive the full inheritance of our adoption as sons and daughters of God. I just want to pause for a moment here and identify that he talks about this as an inward groaning in that we have this, if you will, uh, tension that we live in as sons and daughters of God, that we live in this world, but we're not of the world, that ultimately our citizenship is in heaven, that we're longing for the fullness of the kingdom of God. And so we live with the sense of dissatisfaction with life around us, with how things are going in the world around us, and we long for the fullness of Jesus' kingdom. But verse 24, it says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, this, for me, opens up a very large conversation piece 
about what it means to live in the anointing of the Spirit of God and what it means to be in alignment with the Spirit of God. Because notice there, it says that we don't know how to pray. Uh, In our weakness, we don't know how to pray. And if you think about it, there's so much truth to that because you can look at the circumstances in your life, the circumstances in the life of a loved one, circumstances in the life of a family member, uh, circumstances in our nation and the world. And what we typically do is we pray the way that we think things ought to go. And if you ever doubt that, just think about how you might pray politically. Uh, If you are a Republican, uh, your prayers probably reflect that you think the Republican agenda is in alignment with the kingdom of God. If you're a Democrat, you probably pray in such a way that uh, the democratic agenda seems to align with the kingdom of God. And if you're an American, we, we pray as though America is at the very center of the heart and will of God. So our prayers are tainted by the weakness of our human experience. But because, even though we don't know how to pray, because we have the Holy Spirit within us, the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, look at verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, the Holy Spirit is interceding within us in accordance with the will of God. Now, what does this look like in terms of living in the anointing of the Holy Spirit or living in alignment with uh, the anointing of the Spirit or the will of God? Point of evidence number one, because of our human weakness, we don't know how we're supposed to pray. Point of evidence number two, the Holy Spirit knows exactly how we should be praying. So conclusion, at least from my perspective, is it would do us well to spend more time in prayer listening rather than talking. When it comes time to pray, a lot of times we just, boom, we launch in. And we start rattling off all the the sicknesses of the people around us. We start lifting up all of the needs of the people around us. We we, we go through this whole list of prayers. You know, someone says, pray for so-and-so. And, and so we do, and we try to be faithful in that. But in the middle of that, how much room, how much time, how much space are we allowing for the Holy Spirit? To listen to what the Spirit is saying to us. To listen to how the Holy Spirit is nudging us. To pray, because we might find that the Spirit is leading us to pray very differently than we would pray out of our own weakness. Maybe the Spirit is revealing that what we think is right or how we think things ought to go is not how God wants them to go. Maybe God has a different plan than what we have planned in our minds. But the Spirit knows the will of God. The Spirit is longing to pray for the will of God through us. And the Spirit is inwardly groaning within us, desiring to pray in full alignment with the reality of the kingdom of Jesus and and what it means to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we are so busy just spewing our list of stuff that we don't listen to how the Spirit is directing us to pray. Because the Spirit might be trying to do something deeper than what our eyes or our senses perceive. It's very possible 
that we may find ourselves praying contrary to the will of God. Back in 1986, 1987, somewhere in there, my family was looking to move to Charlotte, North Carolina, and we had uh, a condominium that we had a, a down payment on. We were picking out carpet color and cabinets. It was a new development, and we were picking all this stuff out. My dad had a job lined up uh, down there. We were already kind of getting ourselves enrolled in the schools. Everything was set. All we had to do was sell our house and move. And we had lots of people who expressed interest in the house. We were praying. Uh, we weren't Jesus followers. We were just kind of nominally religious, but still praying that we would sell our house. And as I look back now, I can see that we were praying contrary to the will of God because our house never sold. We never moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. And I can see in my own life, just the next few years after that, things that unfolded that probably would not have unfolded the way that they did had I moved to North Carolina. I probably would not have gone to the college that I went to, where I met my wife the first day there. I wouldn't have my children. I probably wouldn't be serving where I'm serving now. So all of these things that would have been drastically impacted had we moved to Charlotte. In fact, it was very shortly after that that I had committed my life to Jesus Christ. Uh, where I gave up just kind of going through the religious motions and truly began to follow Jesus. And had we made that move to North Carolina, a new life, new beginnings, new stuff, I believe I would have been distracted by what the Holy Spirit had been doing in me, stirring something within me. So a lot of times we can look at circumstances and look at situations and everything seems like, well, of course, this would be the will of God for this to happen. Uh, this job, clearly this person needs a job. This is a great job. We're going to pray they get that job. But is that what the Spirit is leading us to pray? Is that truly the will of God? And so a lot of times for us, prayer becomes either something we see as useless or we find these kind of vague ways of, well, he kind of sort of answered, so praise God for that. But what would it be like if we actually began to pray in alignment with the will of God and saw God work and move? I mean, Jesus promised several times if we ask anything in his name, which is boils down to the same as in his will, he will hear us, he will answer, we'll have what we ask. But I believe a huge part of why that doesn't happen more often is because as soon as it's time to pray, we go, we launch in. And we never take those times to say, Spirit of God, how do you want me to pray? What is the heart of God for this request? What is, what is God trying to do under the surface of this prayer need? So all of that, let's come back to Romans 8, verse 28, where it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I just want to continue on. This is kind of an appendix to uh, the, the text that we really want to look at because we can take verse 28 and abuse it all day long. That God works all things for good for those who love him. Now, again, in our weakness, we define that as what we deem good. And that's not what the passage is saying. God doesn't work all things in accordance with what we deem to be good. In fact, Paul is going to go on here to define good. 
What is that good that God works all things for? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Did you catch it? Let me go back. Let me include verse 28 and see if you catch it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good, that we be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So if we take that and apply it to this passage, we can say that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for our conformity to Christ. God uses everything to make us more like Christ. Sometimes that means we go through hardships. Sometimes that mean, means things don't work out the way that we want them to. And again, there's nothing wrong in prayer of saying, God, this is what I, I long to see happen. But we also have to leave room to say, Spirit of God, what is it you're saying? This is exactly, I believe, what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Saying, Father, I don't want to go through with this. But then he resolves, not kind of in a, a blanket way, but saying, not my will, but your will be done. Because he knew the heart of the Father. He knew the will of God. He knew what the Spirit was saying and knew that this was the only way. And so he resolves himself, Lord, Father, I don't want to do this, but I know this must be done. And so I want to embrace your will. Are we allowing ourselves to walk in that same pattern before we launch into prayer to say, Lord, what is your heart? How do you want me to pray? Not just so that somebody's circumstances work out better for them and what they deem to be a better outcome, but how can the circumstance work out in such a way that they become more like Jesus and Jesus receives all glory through their circumstances? Friends, are we listening? Do we spend so much time trying to cram in every request that we've promised to pray for that we've left no room? for listening to and discerning the heart of the Father through the guidance of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus' name. As we pray in these coming days and this coming week, would you join me in seeking to say less and listen more? Let's pray. Lord, teach each one of us today, tomorrow, this week, what it means for us to talk less in prayer and listen more. And help us to recognize your voice and recognize the leadings and promptings of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you. We honor you. We exalt and praise your name. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining today. And Lord willing, we'll catch you back here next week for part six in our series on the anointing of the Holy Spirit. God bless you.